This podcast is brought to you by sarahraven.com, which is home to everything you need for a truly beautiful and productive garden. You'll also find great and essential gardening kit and stylish, lovely things to have in your house to bring the outside indoors, all inspired by the garden and the house being tied together. There's also plenty of garden inspiration, how-to videos and specialist growing guides. So head over to sarahraven.com today to discover even more. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange, the podcast of me, Sarah Raven. And today I'm joined by Adam Nicholson, my husband. And the reason I asked him on today was because he has been doing lots and lots of research on woodland and garden birds. And chatting to him in the evenings, I've just realized there are so many things I think everyone will be really interested in. Well, I know I am, and I think lots of you will be too. He's actually working on a book, which he'll tell you about, which is called Bird School at the moment, working title. But I just want to give a bit of background to how he got interested in birds, which is that we've had a gardener here for five or six years called Anita Oaks, who's incredibly knowledgeable about her birds, particularly garden birds, and has really nurtured them in her own garden. And so when she started working here, she she came to me and she said, could she put bird feeders up everywhere and could we spend a certain amount of money per week on bird food and get this sort of monthly delivery? And I said, yes, okay, let's give it a go. And we put up some feeders. The room that I'm sitting in at the moment has got huge windows in two directions, so both west and south. And sitting in the chair that I am right now, I can see four or five feeders particularly on the south face, which is a little bit more sheltered and less exposed, which is safer for birds. Whereas on the west, what we found is it's quite exposed and they are not as happy garden birds feeding in that sort of situation because they can be swooped down on by a bird of prey. And I've seen it happen actually with a sparrowhawk. It's an absolutely extraordinary sight with a bird on a bird feeder and just this thing descends from the heavens and basically nabs the bird. So they need to be in quite a sort of a little bit more sheltered place. But the, it was just such a joy that you could just sit and rather than watching telly or reading a book, you could just look at the birds. And initially, we just had a lot of great tits, a lot of blue tits, and below them, robins and blackbirds and thrushes, which are mainly ground feeders. But gradually by continuing with it, we we built up the number of species. And uh, we started to get, well, lots of goldfinches anyway, but some more exciting things, which Adam will come on to talk about. We've heard enough from me now, I think. But anyway, I then persuaded him to do a book on garden and woodland birds, because he'd already written a really fantastic book on birds, but seabirds. And it's called The Seabirds Cry, written about some islands in the Minch called the Shints or the Shants. And what he wrote about was the sort of social anthropology of a cliff. And so, you know, where the puffins live in the hierarchy, where the shags live, where the, what the black back gulls do, what the guillemots do, you know, how they all cohabit. And the thing about those birds 
is that we don't all have easy access to them. You know, we have to go on holiday, most of us, and go and look at them from a boat. But I just felt if he could do the same with garden and woodland birds, which you just have to go for a walk or even just sit at home if you live in a nature-rich part of the world, then how lovely would that be for all of us, I felt. So I persuaded him. So welcome, Adam, to rather a long intro. Well, this is a very nice new version of the chat show where the host chats and the guest listens. (laughs) And at the end of the half hour, the host says, thanks very much for coming. And the, the, the guest says, great, thanks. I loved it. (laughs) <laughs> well, it gives you an easy ride, doesn't it? Um, well, okay, I could so, have breakfast, I suppose, the other option. So tell me, um, what got you into, well, you, I'm, I'm you, just Apparently that. you did. <laughs> apparently. I had never been outside before I spoke to you about this. I'd lived all my life inside. And one day you said to me, why don't you write a book about birds? Is that right? Come on, then. (laughs) Uh, So, well, uh, why why am I doing this? As you say, I did this thing about the seabirds and had never really paid any attention to the birds we have here. And Anita's amazing example and her incredible encouragement of birds here. And the thing, the key thing, in fact, for feeders is not that the bird feeders themselves should be in a sheltered place, but that there should be very, very good shelter right next to them. So you should have them next to a bush or next to a, a tree so that the the feeding birds can dart out and mm. dart back. Yeah, makes uh, sense. And that is the sense of safety they get. And they also undoubtedly have a sense of safety in numbers. So there is a kind of built-in accelerator. The more you have them doing it, the more they will like to come there because they can see that's, that's a happy place to be and productive place to be. So anyway, we decided jointly to build a little uh, bird hide in the wood a very nice little hut on stilts right up against uh, the trees. I mean, literally with oak trees within six inches of its windows. Mm. And uh, to kind of like an Australian's hat with corks kind of dangle bird feeders around it. And so that the, being in the little hut, you could be totally in bird world and... You know, I said, well, calling the book uh, "Bird School," it's a bird. It is a bird. It's a school. It's a school of birds, about how to be with birds, mm. how to kind of sit there and absorb birdiness. I mm. think of it as abs- absorbatory, not observatory, but absorbatory. Mm. But also that I'm learning birds, they're teaching me how to how to be. There's there's all kinds of kind of rippling layers inside it and it's been absolutely magical actually. I've it has transformed my way of walking out. I mean I know you told me to go outside for the first time. So <laughs> so uh, but it has completely it's added another well, not one layer, it's added a whole stack of layers mm. of life. So now, for example, the wood botanically is kind of over yeah. for the year. Yeah. You know, the, the bluebells are shot, the garlic's lying there, yellow, the whole thing is beginning to get that feeling of early summer exhaustion. But the wood is absolutely thick 
with little fledgling birds just emerging into the light for the first time, flopping about, so half competent and ma- sort of amazed that they can fly. And that's, it's, it's literally added another month to spring yeah. for me. Yeah. Uh, what a, how much, you know, in all the gloom and despair of the world, mm. imagine having another month of spring added to your life. So it's completely enhancing. And although I am now about, 85 am i 85 <laughs> uh i it does it's rejuvenating it's a completely illuminating and one of the things certainly that you've taught me that you've learnt is merlin so will you will you talk about merlin yes there's this fantastic uh bird lab laboratory in cornell university in new york and they have been making incredible studies of birds for a very very long time and last year i think literally about this time last year they brought out this wonderful new app free to download all funded by uh, american philanthropy called merlin very very good name for a for a magical uh, bird app because it's he merlin is both a bird and a wizard yeah and you can walk around on your with your phone playing merlin and merlin hears birds singing even many many birds at once it can hear 10 birds singing at once in the dawn chorus and tell you in real time actually as they're singing what they are so it's like i think um binoculars for the ears mm, okay it's like That's ear binoculars that suddenly you start knowing what you're surrounded by so this morning i was up very early four fifteen, walking around in the very very beautiful early dawn this morning and so there in the hedge as i was walking along merlin told me although i'm trying to learn it without Merlin, wean myself off Merlin. There's the blackbird, you know, banging away like a kind of, uh, he's like Miles Davis, I always think. He's sort of like a big jazz trumpeter, just a nice, nice, fruity, big, jazzy noise. And then next to him and all over that was the black cap, which is this wonderful African um, migrant and uh, European migrant, and which is all like a sort of fluty, silvery top thing above that. And then the kind of crazy jazz trombone um, to song thrush, just banging out mad riffs. And then the rather boring, and I think Robin singing away, and uh, the, the wrens and uh, the tits and all these things. And so something which would have been before a isn't that nice a kind of noise yes it's lovely but isn't that nice suddenly becomes an entire geography an entire oral ecology which you're you're swimming through it's like swimming in song i mean it's amazing well you can you can hear the individual instruments in the orchestra kind of because you you can recognize their their tone and their yes and i've just discovered this wonderful thing that the larger a bird's eye the earlier it sings in the dawn. Wow. Yes. So you start with a blackbird or Mm. uh, then a thrush probably and then a robin Mm. uh, and then you go down to a great tit, blue tit, Mm. marsh tit, little cold tit or long tail tit because the bigger the eye, the more sensitive to light. Mm. And so a blackbird literally sees the dawn first oh that's amazing but then how does that relate to a nightingale do they have 
I don't know. That's a very good question. Mm. We sadly don't have them here. No, we have had, and maybe we will again, but we'll come on to that. And so uh, I, I was with a friend the other day. I just wanted to talk more about or ask you more about what you've learned from birds. And um, he told me this wonderful story, which is that he's a very nature person. He's called Pip Morrison, who's a garden designer, and he's a real massive poultry enthusiast. I mean, he's always had a huge a variety and interest in hens and other poultry. He has um, he has guinea fowl and turkeys and things. But he says now that he can tell when a fox is coming through the field towards the hens because, first of all, you know, the different birds will give different alarm calls. And as it gets nearer, his dogs are now trained to know the alarm calls of the different birds as the as the fox gets closer. And, you know, particularly the blackbirds really noisy with their alarm call. But they've become so attuned that he can he can literally go out and sort of get rid of the fox, having heard sort of five minutes or so of, of alarm calls through the different birds. Have you noticed that here as well? Well, it's quite amazing about the alarm calls. The birds have more than one alarm call. And they've just done this brilliant experiment somewhere, I think, in in Australia, where uh, it's perfectly clear that uh, a bird, I think it's called a fairy wren, a little wren, Australian wren, has one kind of uh, alarm call for a crow Mm. and another for a snake. Wow. And if if it sings the crow one, the babies crouch lower in the nest because (gasps) it knows it can can, uh, protect them there. If it does the snake alarm call, they all hop out of the nest because a snake can get into the nest and wow. eat them. Wow. And so there is there are layers and layers of complexity on this. I the um I put up, as you know, a series of nest boxes in the in the wood. And most of them have blue tits in. And one blue tit nest very, very late. I was there yesterday and the, and looking in it and the, the the little fledglings are nearly ready to go, but not quite. And the blue tit, you know, which usually makes a tiny little sound, I have a tiny blue tit, was dancing around me, not far away. I mean, maybe about five yards away as I was looking at it. Here and here and here and here, all in a ring around me, honestly sounding like a football rattle. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. Uh, like that, as wow. loud as that for a bird that size. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's magnificent, this, isn't it? That I, I, I must have heard that all my life. Mm. I literally must have, that must have been in my ears, but I've never, never known Consciously it until heard now. it, yeah, yeah. <gasps> no, that is incredible. So um, apart from the alarm calls, I love the idea that you're learning from the birds. Uh, that wonderful, wonderful film called... Octopus story? No, op- octopus teacher. teacher. Teacher, yeah. My octopus teacher. So, w- what do you feel you, you are learning and have learnt from them? Well, the th- the main thing, which is not an entirely a good thing that I've learnt, is that we all now, particularly maybe at this stage in in sort of where we're all at, kind of long to get close with nature, and even actually to kind of acquire it in mm. a way. And to do the, all we can, so all my nest boxes and all my feeders and all the rest of it are actually an attempt to kind of almost to grab it. Mm. And 
I am starting to feel a bit sceptical about that intention, mm. that in fact, really, what I should do is to, is just to provide its world, just to provide a, wor a world for the birds. Yes. And to really thicken and enrich the places where they can be. I went to, you know, the other day, I went to this extraordinary place in Bedfordshire. Yeah. Where um, in the 1980s, the farmer there, who's an absolutely bang to rights industrial chemical farmer, got fed up with the whole farming system and stopped farming in 1984, literally stopped farming. He got paid some um, set-aside payments, but he just stopped. He wasn't particularly interested in nature. He loved owls, but nothing much else. And so 84, 94, what's that? It's very nearly 40 years ago now. And the farm, 350-acre farm, quite a big arable farm, surrounded by brutally destroyed Bedfordshire arable fields, is now a phenomenal wood. Mm. Full. It has 30 nightingale territories in it. It has 350 different warbler, African warbler territories, willow warblers, sedge warblers, garden warblers. It has white throats. It has all the birds that we long to have by him having done nothing, mm. literally nothing, yeah, yeah. no management, no habitat creation. He has simply left what was there. And so these fields that are now, you know, little are woods, are thick woods, that I went there early in the morning, drove, left here at two in the morning, got there at five in the morning, and it that was like arriving in paradise. And so I honestly think that letting be is is my new mantra. Let them be and stop mucking about with it in not only in our sort of destructive ways, but mucking about with it in the kind of I want to manage you way. But how could you do that, though, if you've got a tiny urban or suburban garden? I mean, how can I honestly you... think you could halve it. I mean, I don't know what the acreage of uh, uh, gardens are, but I mean, it, there must be a million acres. If you halved your garden and you gardened half your oh, garden I see. and you simply abandoned it, there's a lot of, you know, to do about the rewilding thing. But I think if you simply abandoned it, then that would provide half a million acres mm. of unmucked around with habitat, not only for birds. You know, there are lovely wood mice uh, next mm. to our hide. You see tootling around it in the edge, edge of the wood. And I think just letting be, yeah. Okay, so so sort of section off a part of your garden and and plant more hedge, you know, plant it. Yeah, more, thicken yeah. it up. I mean, thicken you can. I mean, you could obviously encourage it. This is mainly it's a it's a, an extraordinary hawthorn wood that has grown on. Uh, I mean, there are some alders and willows, but it's mainly yeah. hawthorns, and which is uh, so quick, isn't it? It's such a quick. It's very growth. quick. It's very uh, robust. You know, copes with all bad weathers. Da, da, da. You know, it's not a fragile environment by definition and uh, it will also shift with uh, climate change you know if the mm. actual environment is changing these places will move with that mm. and will acquire uh, new botanical species new bird species new everything species yeah. and obviously the entire invertebrate world okay so half the garden here is going over to uh, i'm game <laughs> <Wilderness>. <laughs> i might see you a bit more
<laughs> That's true. <laughs> All right. Well, I would. Um, I mean, I find it fascinating. We we could we could chat on for ages, but it would be great if you come back in a few months and it's very tell us kind of you to offer what, what more you've learned. But before <laughs> we finish, I thought it would be really nice if we could both say the three birds that are our current favourites, gardener woodland birds that we've really fallen in love with over this, both of us observing them in the bird hide. Well, uh, I... You do one, I'll do then. Do I love a nightingale, although we have not had them down in, in our hide. I did go to France the other day and did a lot of early early morning walking. And just to have that voluble, beautiful, poignant song in your ear. And, you know, they're not frightened nightingales. They can sing as near as near, near you are to me now. And we do have one very lovely thing here, which is a song thrush who clearly heard a nightingale when he was young. Mm. And he does some little nightingale snatches of song. You know, when a nightingale goes... Oh, yes, that's oh, so characteristic. Oh, he does that. Oh. Yeah. So, okay, nightingale is number one. By the way, were nightingales ever caged with you saying? Mm. Yeah, they were. They don't like it, though, and they usually die. Right, okay. I was just wondering if, if you know, they, they're not shy. Um, okay, well, that's your number one. My mm. number one is the long-tailed tit, which you tell me, it's not in the tit family at all, no. which is extraordinary because it looks so like it, which is why I suppose it's been named with the rest of them. But I have found... I think they look like Donald Trump in a bad mood. No, they've they... They've got a little face. No, they're really sweet. They're real farrow and ball palette, you know, that lovely sort of dead salmon-coloured breast. They're incredibly chic, the colouring. And they're just very, very sweet right at the top of the trees with their long tail balancing them right on the on the very very tippy top of of all the trees and when we started with the bird hide they wouldn't come near they were right at the top of a dying ash a bit away but now they come to the feeders and for me it's a great celebratory moment because they're just incredibly sweet and incredibly pretty and really decorative both in sort of shape proportion and color so i'm crazy about the long-tailed tits and it's so interesting that we don't have them really in the garden at all but on Friday night, we got back from having had supper out and we'd left the windows open and there was a, a fledgling long-tailed tit in our bathroom, which we managed to get out and save. But, I mean, that for me is such a sign that you have changed the microclimate environment here so that we have got an increase, a huge increase in, in bird population. I watched a whole flock of them this morning, early this morning, going to and fro from the wood to the stream and the wood to the stream. Yeah. Six of them backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. And I'm sure it is partly what you say, which is once you see a red car, you then see a 100. Mm. But I think it is also partly that the numbers have just gone up since you started, well, Anita and then you started so consciously looking after them. Okay, they're so very, they're very... I mean, they're very fragile little things. I was watching them. Each beat of their wing, I was watching this morning, only gives them an 18-inch sort of pulse. So they go, and they only get 18 inches. And then someone said the other to me the other day that being a bird now today, or being a bird anywhere, is like being a human being in Jurassic Park. You know, it's a sort of terrifying right. place to be. Gosh, yeah. I don't know how we know that. But anyway, what's number two? It's, it's a horrible thing to say. <laughs> 
um my number two is the song thrush okay for he just there's we have a song thrush in the big oak just outside the kitchen here who has been honestly banging away for three months endlessly inventive changing his song every day through every day it's an extraordinary outpouring of uh you know the positive that you've taught me the song thrush has this thing that I now can recognize because it repeats its song. So it'll do sort of some particular tone three or four times and then another tone three or four times and then another tone and rhythm three or four times. And so that's how you can tell it's a song thrush. And now I hear them all around, which again, like you, for me, it would just be background noise in the past. But now I consciously know um, what the song thrush sounds like. So that's very nice as well as what it looks like. So my number two is the siskin, which I just wasn't aware of. And I know these aren't garden birds, they're woodland birds. But they are the most sort of glamorous, little yellow, very delicate, very slim. The male is is really sort of bright mustardy yellow with a touch of green in it. And the female is more grey and white and black with a bit of a hint of yellow in it. But they have this very elegant shape and really just such a joy I think and certainly in the wood when you started with the bird hide they were very rare and now they're incredibly common and so by uh, you know they, they really have built up their population but I mean I suppose it could only be one nest that's so near the bird hide that we're seeing seven or eight you know very very regularly on the feeders there but I particularly love the siskin which was new to me entirely new to me only a year ago so your final number three? My final three is the blackbird. Yes. Largely because I did read this wonderful thing the other day, a music teacher from Southampton who lives in the New Forest says that the blackbirds in her garden sing phrases from Beethoven's later quartets. And she wrote it all down and transcribed them. And so this is very curious. How on earth does a blackbird sing a Beethoven late quartet? And so she went to Bonn, I think it was, where where Beethoven was when he was composing. And indeed, the blackbirds in Bonn sing those phrases that Beethoven then put into his late quartet. But how did the phrases from the Beethoven get into the English New Forest blackbirds? They must have been listening to people playing LPs through their open windows. <laughs> Isn't that magic? I love that. <laughs> and do you believe it? I yeah. surely do. She's a very serious professor of music at Southampton University. She's not faking it. Okay. So my number three is a tree creeper. And I've always loved a nuthatch, which have that amazing buff-coloured breast and that really pointy beak that remind me so much of a kingfisher. But the tree creeper I adore when I'm sitting in the bird hide because it's like a stone. It sort of it climbs to the top of a tree and then falls right down to the bottom of the next door tree and then climbs to the top of that tree and then like a stone falls down. And I love that. And apparently that's it, eating all the insects and bugs in the bark of the tree. And so it harvests from one, goes around the other side, harvests again from that, and then it drops down onto the other tree, harvest from that. And I, I love them. They're like these little kind of lizards in a way, climbing up the, the side of a tree, but quite difficult to spot. But good old Merlin um, pointed out that they were here and then we started to, to notice them. And that's the thing I think with Merlin is 
It tells you what's there and then you look for it and then you find it and then you know it. And I'm not sure about this thing about acquiring, but it certainly totally enriches every walk that particularly you, because you've learned more than me, but uh, me too, go in, in the countryside. You just suddenly there's this whole other layer upon layer upon layer of, of riches for us to all love. Do you think you might be a human tree creeper? <laughs> Why? <laughs> okay, you're digging along the little lines in the garden. Dig, 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 dig. Yes, next line, back down the next line. Dig it up, dig it up like that. Well, maybe. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much, Adam. And it'd be lovely if you came back again in a few months when you've learned some more. Oh, thanks very much. Thanks very much for listening to Grow Cookie to Range, joined by Adam Nicholson, my husband, talking about woodland and garden birds. I hope you really enjoyed it. Next week, I'm joined by another writer, Blanche Vaughan, with her fantastic new book, A Year in the Kitchen. And it's basically seasonal recipes, going outside into the garden and picking incredibly delicious food and making it into stylish but simple recipes and just the sort of food that I want to eat. She's the cookery editor for House and Garden magazine and has great style and panache with an amazing repertoire of kitchens that she's worked in. So tune in then. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes we talk about on this podcast by heading to the show notes or at sarahraven.com forward slash podcast.